Threads of Faith, deeply personal tales of family, faith, and resilience. Authentic, uplifting, and inspirational. In this final episode, as Edward deep dives into his family dynamics, we can think of our family heritage like, well, a pine cone. Those seeds contain the history of the, the tree that came before it and the tree that came, that came before that. And it's, it's there in your genes. And in my family, there's a very strong history of, of Alzheimer's dementia, one that I th- think about a lot because I've seen so much of my family go through it. You know, and it started, you know, back in the 50s. You know, I used to visit my uh, grandpa, Pop Pop Rossiter, the only li- living grandparent at the time. And he had what, he was living with my cast, and he had what everyone called at the time. He was doty, you know, or they might even say senile, you know. But it was, there was no real understanding of the biological processes that his brain was actually going through. And he used to always, you know, he'd give me a quarter. Every time he, I came, he'd give me, that was his big thing, he'd give me a quarter. But, you know, as time went on, he would say sometime later in the visit, did I give you your quarter? And, you know, being a kid, I said, no, of course not. <laughs> so he'd give me a second quarter. And then the third time he'd say, did I remember to, before you leave, let me give you a quarter. And I'd go, oh, that'd be really nice. I'd like that. You know, and I'm a little kid and I think this is all a game that adults play. Right. But um, it wasn't, you know, it, it was he had Alzheimer's before that term was used very much. It, it dates back to the early 1900s, but it really wasn't used until recently as a diagnosis. But. As I said, he was living with my Aunt Cass out on the main line in Paoli, Pennsylvania at the time. And, you know, Cass later became demented and had Alzheimer's. So did Marion, the second sister, and so did one of the brothers. So that's three of my my mother's five siblings, you know, all coming down and dying of Alzheimer's. And then I saw the the symptoms start to emerge in my mother's life. And I mean, even with all the knowledge that we had, my brother and sister and I, you know, you still go into denial, like it can't be happening. This isn't the normal fluctuations, the variables of an aging brain. It's just, you know, it's not a big deal, but it was a big deal. And deep down inside, I knew it was a big deal. And I began to think, you know, one time I Julie and I went back to see my mom and um, visit her in Michigan from New York. We brought this, our lovely, adorable young Cocker Spaniel with us named Sally. And I thought that'd be nice, you know, you know, mom was living by herself then and next door to my brother so he could keep an eye on her. And I thought, oh, they'll, they'll get along great. My mom always had a dog. Maybe we should, maybe we should get her. I said to Julie, let's get her a dog. Maybe that would be great. <laughs> I am so glad that nobody followed through on that idea, as, as, you know, especially for the sake of the dog. Yes. Because it was, you know, we, so we, we brought Sally's food with us and Julie and I would go out in the daytime. I love showing, you know, the places I grew up, my right. grammar school and all that and places where I played little league ball and hockey on the lake. And, you know, we noticed the food supply was diminishing, you know, cause we leave, you know, Sally back with my mom rather alarmingly quickly. And it soon, I soon realized that, that my mom was just she forgot if she fed Sally, so she'd feed her again and again. No wonder Sally loved her, you know? So, and so, and I, you know, I, I took Sally aside. I said, what are you up to? You know? And so I finally, I went to my mom and I said, look, we're going to change the system a little bit because you don't want to. I mean, my mom, deep down inside, having seen all her siblings go through Alzheimer's, was terrified that she would never admit it. And I didn't want to alarm her. So I said, we're going to, you know, actually Julie came up with it. The idea that we would, you know, portion out all the meals in the little plastic sacks so my my mom could feed her and we'd write down a schedule and you know 
I remember my mom looking at me and snapping. And she was not snappish, especially with me. She said, I know how to feed a dog. And I just, my heart sank. Because she was angry because she was afraid. That, and you know what happened at that moment? I thought, well, they're coming. And this is really selfish. But I thought, is there going to come a day in my life when I won't know how to feed a dog? And I looked at my mom and my grandpa, and, you know, I thought, that may be my fate as well, just because the odds are so so much in favor of it occurring. And so I grew very apprehensive. That began, it's like trying to outrun your shadow. That became a kind of a cloud in my life, always thinking. And I watched my mother in those, you know, coming years, you know, decline through that miasma of dementia, that fog bank that people you know, drift off into and disappear into. And it did. It happened to my mom. And as painful as that was to watch, I kept thinking, is it going to happen to me too? And I wanted to find out. Someone once said that we want to know the truth until someone says it. It can be a weird paradox, wanting to know about the health of you and your loved ones, and yet denying signs that maybe our health is declining. I mean, I had heard from my brother and sister who lived close to my mom in Michigan. I had heard from them that she was having these episodes and, you know, and everyone knew that it ran in the family. It wasn't like a secret. I mean, we'd seen both her sisters die in memory care. So, but we were in denial. You know, that's the thing about human beings. And, and it's not like, I mean, my, my brother and his wife are both lawyers. My sister's a psychologist. You know, they... On some level, you would think they would totally know what's going on. But again, it was the denial. It's not this bad or it's not ready. We were not going to put her into a memory care unit, at least not now. And every year, it's the same thing. And she got worse and worse. One of the things, though, I, I said probably the worst thing she did at the end was she sideswiped a cop, you know, forgot that it happened until he pulled her over. And then she, of course, being my mom, she blamed him. It was all his fault. You should watch what he's doing with his police car. You know, she right. was that kind of person. It's not going to take a lot from other people. And so, but I remember doing something that I saw my mom do. We were there visiting. And it may have been the same trip when we, we brought Sally back to meet my mom. But we we're in the kitchen. We we're making my breakfast. My mother was a whiz of a breakfast cook. That's all she could cook. But, you know, she, she cooked a great breakfast cook, and she's cooking bacon and eggs and everything, and Julie's getting some stuff ready. We're making coffee. She made coffee. And suddenly Julie, you know, yells, oh, my gosh, there's no carafe. And I'll turn around. The coffee machine was just, there was just coffee all over the place because my mom forgot to put the carafe under the coffee machine. And, and then she couldn't find the carafe. We said, Mom, where's the carafe? Well, we got to get it. And finally, I found it. But she had no idea where the craft was or that she had forgotten to put it under the coffee maker. Meanwhile, she's making a great batch of, you know, eggs and, and bacon. But, but you know, and, and Julie tried to kind of, you know, later said, you know, your mom drinks tea in the morning. She's not used to making coffee. That, but you know, that was the kind of denial that we came in because it was. So what happens 25 years later, Julie and I are in the kitchen of our house. And all of a sudden she screams. And I turn around and there's coffee all over the kitchen counter. I'd forgotten to put the craft. 25 years later, I did the same thing that was an early symptom of my mother's memory loss. And I thought, it's happening to me. I still think, even when I got up this morning, I thought, okay, how's my memory? How am I doing? Hi. 
Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. You know, I second-guess myself all the time, and it's a very interesting psychological phenomenon because you're, you're second-guessing your memory when you wouldn't normally second guess it like you know and it's a pattern you get into whether or not your memory is deteriorating or not you begin to question everything you don't remember and of course nobody remembers everything though i think 20 years ago that i remembered everything i'm probably delusional about that but you know so so it becomes this sort of obsessive compulsive thinking pattern about the memory and whether or not the memory really is slipping or if it's your worriness and your anxiety and fear about it and watching and seeing what my mom went through, I think is, is that going to be me? You know, you know, I, I think about visiting her in the nursing home late in the disease when she was in bed and thinking at the time, will I be in a bed like that in 25, 30 years? Okay. So that's not very, it's not an uplifting thing to get interested in, but I said, okay, I should take an action because that's what you know, life teaches us to take an action. And that's what faith teaches us. You know, okay, step out in faith, you know. And I decided I wanted to go to an, through neurological testing, including brain scans and spinal taps and all of that and testing. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, why do you want to know? You know, and I think, I think wanting to know is what makes us human. I think that wanting to know is what drives the curiosity of the human race you know wanting to know the future wanting to know yourself wanting to know god and wanting to know god's love that's the yearning that for me at least that makes me feel human now not everyone agrees and some people don't want to know they want to stay in the now they don't want to know if the future holds something upsetting for them and, you know, wanting to know the future is, you know, you're a little bit like you're trying to steal from God what is only God's, which is knowledge of the future. So there is something, you know, spiritually, I have to be careful about wanting to know things. But, you know, I don't think God would put these resources in front of me if he didn't think I should take advantage of them if I thought that was the best thing. And I want to know because I'm just that kind of person. And I... And so one of the things that confirmed for me, the one thing that really confirmed that this, that this was, you know, this was blessed for me to, to try to find out these things about my mind was I was, I, so I went to the uh, NYU, New York University, which is a huge hospital system in New York, incredibly good. And they have a whole memory care center there. And so I, I'm a patient with NYU, so they have all my records and everything, you know, and, you know, a few years ago, they, they replaced my left hip. So I figured if they could, I trusted them with my hip. I could trust them with my brain. So I go to NYU, and they they randomly assigned me one of the uh, neurologists, 
at, um, at their memory care center. And um, I looked at the appointment when I was about to go in, and I thought, that's a really weird, that's a familiar name, and Dr. Uh, Salinas. I said, that's so strange. Why? Why him? And, and then I realized he'd been in guideposts. You know, I ran in New York City of all places. You know, randomly, Dr. Joel Salinas had been in actually well, our Mysterious Ways magazine. He's a synesthetic, which means he has tremendous empathy. It's it's a neurological condition. Um, and he had given a, a, an interview with uh, our editors at Mysterious Ways magazine and uh, on our Facebook page as a Facebook Live. And I thought, that's amazing. I didn't recognize him because he had been in Boston. He had been at Harvard at the time that he talked to our, our staff about empathy. But he had been moved down and been given a lab here in New York. So I felt that this is, there's a little divine touch. They're saying, okay, you're, you're, you're on the right path, you know. You're not completely off the, the mark here. So, you know, and so I did, I underwent the, the testing. And, you know, I'd, some of those memory tests, you know, I couldn't have passed in graduate school, let alone in my 60s. So... And then, and yeah, and then just this process. I, I came back a year later and I had the MRIs done and a lot of brain imaging to did the testing again. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm not doing as well on this, these tests. And I was right. You know, one of the things about, nice about NYU, you can, a lot of hospitals do this now is they post the, the visit notes right on your, your chart so you can go in. So of course, the minute I get out the door, I'm on my phone trying to remember my passwords so I can get into my chart to see what he said. And I had some decline. When I first came in, I was diagnosed with subjective cognitive decline, which is exactly what it's basically is. It's self-reported. And the second time I came in, that was changed to mild cognitive decline. So I underwent further a neuropsychological testing, which took two days. I have to go back for some more brain imaging. So I have this diagnosis of mild cognitive decline. A friend of mine who's a doctor, not a neurologist, but said, look, lots of people, you know, over the age of 60 could get that diagnosis, and it doesn't mean that they're going to get any worse, right? But it is one of the conditions that could lead to Alzheimer's. So I'm trying to deal with that. So, and, and to get back to the question of, who wants to know? Who wants to find out? Like, you know, I, I think wanting to know is human, but wanting to know also, I think if you know you have faith and you know that whatever you find out, you're not going to be on your own. It's so comforting to know that our faith in God transcends our circumstances, although that's much easier to say than to always believe. And yet... Sometimes those moments of faith have a way of poking light through the darkness. Well, I was amazed at how much of my mother's memory, the part that contained, if faith is contained in the memory, and I don't think it is really, faith and love, those two forces, those powerful, indestructible forces live outside your brain matter. You know, Alzheimer's and related dementias are, are organic conditions of the brain. I mean, we know how... We don't know how they start necessarily. We certainly know how these rogue proteins begin to clog up the memory and you forget how, you forget everything until you literally forget how to think. My mom could still pray, you know? The one thing she could do, I mean, she would always make it to prayer time at the memory care unit. She didn't know what day it was. She didn't know if anyone else would be there, but she would bring, and rosaries, like, you know, I remember she kept a rosary in her hands even after she sort of lost the ability to talk, you know. And when she heard a hymn or Christmas carols, 
You know, I, I remember, you know, this one Christmas we went out to see, it was the last Christmas I saw my mom and my cousin Carol brought her one of these big, you know, pop-up books. It was the 12 days of Christmas. And so we're all sitting around talking and in a sense, not really involving mom in the discussion because she wasn't at the stage where she could be involved in the discussion. And all of a sudden she started to read from the book. You know, she, and she was a little confused. Turtle doves, you know, turned into, you know, turtle dolls and, you know, all the, she couldn't get it quite right, but she kept slowly reading. And I started to help her. And she said, are you going to let me do this by myself? And I thought, she's still in there. <laughs> she's still there. And, you know, she faded out then, but I run, you know, I remember I went into that meeting with her that day thinking, does mom even know? what day it is and she did she did because it was the day that we celebrate christ's birth and she was never going to forget that no matter what else she forget amen let edward's mother be an inspiration to us as well in knowing that our faith is higher our hope is stronger and our love is bigger than anything this world can throw at us if we rely on the one who is greater than us We hope you've enjoyed this journey that has taken a small peek at how our relationships, particularly the ones with our families, has such an impact in growing us and teaching us about what's most important in life. God is ever-present and always ready to provide support, grace, and guidance in your life. May you be blessed, and may you be a blessing to others. And as always... Keep weaving your own beautiful bonds of love and threads of faith. I'm Billy Yancey, entrepreneur, fitness cowboy, father, retired Navy cornerback, and now podcast host. Listen to my new show, Billy and the Goat, on Life Audio. Happy listening.